Good morning, everyone. Ah, you're awake. Normally, I have to encourage you to do it again. Man, that's impressive. Uh, it's great to be with you here this morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Joe. I'm one of the elders on staff, and it's just a privilege to be able to bring to you God's Word. Uh, we've been journeying over the last couple of weeks, or this is our second week, through the, the book of Habakkuk. Uh, I know it's a bit of an odd book. Uh, believe it or not, it's in the Bible. Um, it's a minor prophets found in the Old Testament. I'd like you to turn there in the meantime if you have your Bibles with you. Uh, and we've uh, labeled the series A Faith in an Age of Fear. And the strange thing about Habakkuk is though it's quite an unknown book, not, not many of us are familiar with it. It's an incredibly relevant book. It's a timeless book. It's a, it's a, a book that it can speak to all generations at any time um, because Habakkuk deals with things that we all have to deal with at some point in our lives. And that is uncertainty, that is fear, that is a, a place where you question what God is doing and why God would even think of doing that. And uh, that is certainly true for us in the, uh, in the year 2021, uh, but if not uh, now, also some other point in our lives, we will see at individual levels that we question and ask God, what are you doing and why do you think you can do it like this? And sometimes, as we see in the book of Habakkuk, he asks those questions. And so we get to glean from him and, and learn from him and we will see there's much uh, value in this small book, relatively unknown book, that will be able to give us some real, real good insight on how to live a life of faith. And so uh, this morning, I just want to give you a bit of an update of what last week was about. Uh, if you missed it, it's only a three-part series, believe it or not, hey, our church doing a whole book in three weeks, so that's amazing. We don't even do a chapter in three weeks, um, but we're going to do, uh, this is just a three-part series. So if you missed last week, I really encourage you to go and check it out. Matt preached a great sermon. It's encouraging to me, and it'll be encouraging to you too, but it's a really foundational, as Matt would say last week, that it is the, the ABCs of our faith. Um, and go and listen to it. Let it stir up faith in your heart. I know it will be beneficial to you. But last week, we dived into the book of Habakkuk, and we noticed that Habakkuk starts off with a prayer to God. It's one out of two dialogues that he has with God, and his first prayer and cry out to God is, Lord, please save this nation Israel. They are wicked, they are unfaithful, they are far from you, and Lord, I desperately want them to be reunited with you. Draw them to yourself, please. And he cries and he asks God to please do this, and it seems, at least as we read chapter one, that Habakkuk has been doing this for some time, that he goes, Lord, you, I'm crying out and I'm asking you to do this, but why aren't you answering there, there seems to be no movement on God's behalf. And I, I just want to stop there and say, doesn't that sometimes resonate with us in our prayer life? Lord, please do this. And he's not, even, he's not even being selfish. He's not even praying necessary for himself. He's praying for his nation. And you might be praying for a family member, a spouse, a, a friend, a colleague. And you say, Lord, save them. But what seems to be happening is God doesn't seem to be moving at all. And this, this resonates with us as we cry out and ask God to come and, and, and intervene. That sometimes he just seems silent. But after a point, God responds. And this is the first time we see God break in. And, and God says these wonderful words. It's, it's, it does seem wonderful in the beginning. In, in verse 5 of chapter 1, he says, Among the nations, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Sounds positive, right? Oh, man, God is going to say something good. 
that he's going to answer my prayers, he's going to tell me about how he's going to revive and restore this nation. But instead, what God goes and says is, well, actually, I'm raising up another nation called the Chaldeans, or as we would know them, the Babylonians. And they're a ruthless nation. They're a violent nation. And what they're going to do is they're going to be my instruments to place judgments on the people of Israel. That floors him. And isn't that sometimes true for us when we pray and we ask God to do something and he does the complete opposite of what we want? And he, he's confused by this, he's perplexed, he's, he's a bit angry, he, he doesn't know why God is doing this, God, why would you do this? And he, he starts to argue with God, he says, man, I've been calling us wicked, but in comparison to the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, man, they are far more wicked than we are. How could you use them, Lord? How could you use them? And, and we don't necessarily see that answer in chapter one. In chapter two, he will go and say, well, actually, I'm using them up as my instruments, but I will punish them as well. But in the midst of all this fear, in the midst of all this chaos, we see that Habakkuk is able to calm his heart down. He goes from being perplexed to be able to have a load of faith. How does he do it? Well, last week we said, well, firstly, you need to stop and think. Sometimes our emotions run, the, run everything and, 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 and make us uh, act on our emotions. He doesn't. He stops and he thinks, which seems obvious, but we really are bad at doing that. But he doesn't just stop and think and start to fix the problem like many of us would go to. Okay, this is the situation before us. How are we going to solve it? He doesn't even do that. He goes to something far more concrete. He goes to the only absolute in his life in the midst of uncertainty. When all else is uncertain and seems to be falling apart, where do we run to? We run to those things that we know are certain. And where does he go to? The only thing that does not change, he goes to God. And he stops and he fixes his eyes on God. He recalls, intentionally recalls who God is. We see that in in verse 12 and and verse 13. Lord, you are everlasting. Lord, you never change. He he goes, oh Lord, it's the word Yahweh which appeals to covenant. Lord, you are faithful. You are a faithful God. You are holy and you act out of holiness. You are just. You don't do sinful things. You don't do wrong things. And he goes, oh, Lord, you, would, you, you bring your day in judgment. You judge well. And, and he goes further, oh, rock, oh, my strength. It's in this, in the moments of fear and uncertainty, that he fixes his eyes on who God is, that faith arises in his heart. When we go through life, our faith is most stable when it is centered on who God is. Our faith is most stable when it is centered on who God is. You see, you might know the promises of God off by heart. God might even reveal to you what action he might do. But if you don't know the character of God, the promises that he gives you and the action that he has laid before you will hold little weight in giving you faith. Why? Because you will not believe that he can do them. You will not trust that he will fulfill them because you question the character behind the person who is making those promises. The, the foundation or the, the, the solidity of our faith is rests on who God is. It's so important. See, the deficiency of our faith, church, is not that we have a poor expectation of what God can do, but we have a poor understanding of who God is. Do you want to grow in faith? Grow in your knowledge of who God is. And so that's what we spoke about last week. I, man, I, I've really spoken a whole lot more than I, I had intended to. 
on it, but that I want you to have that at the forefront of your mind because we're going to be building off that this morning. So with that, let's look at Habakkuk 2, um, verses 2 to 4. We're going to be unpacking the whole of the, the we're going to be looking at parts of the, the whole chapter, but let's just look at uh, verses 2 to 4. It says the following. The Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. And this is particularly the verse we're going to be unpacking this morning. It says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. I want you to, I'm going to read that verse again, but what I want you to notice is there's, there's two ways of living. There's a way of unbelief and there's a way of a faith. And, and if you see it, behold, his soul was puffed up. It is not right within him. As I will argue later on in the sermon, that is a way of unbelief. But in the this, in this second part of it, it says, but the righteous shall live by faith. So what I want to do this morning is I want to look at those two ways of life. How are we to be a people to, that can live by faith? And how are we to avoid being a people that live by unbelief? And so let's start off with a positive one. I normally do the negative first and then the positive at the end, but I really want to hone in on the positive first this morning. And so I want to ask us the question, how do we live a life of faith? Well, the first place we need to start is to figure out how do we get life? Uh, it might seem like the most obvious, I hope it's the most obvious thing I state this morning, is that you cannot live if you do not have life. You cannot live if you do not have life. Now, I'm not talking about physical life. We're not going to go into the biology of that this morning. I'm talking about spiritual life. How do we gain spiritual life? Well, this very text itself, the righteous shall live by faith, gives us an indication of that. We see it explained for us in other New Testament epistles. They use it to tell us how do we gain this life, and it's right there in the, in the verse. We gain and get this life through faith in Jesus. Do you want to have a spiritual life? It is in Jesus alone, having faith in him. We see that in a number of different texts. Excuse me. Uh, John 3, 16, the most famous of them all, says, For God so loved the world that he gave us his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. How do you get life? It is believing in the son that the father sent, and you will gain eternal life. We see it again explained for us in uh, 1 John 5, 11, and says, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in the Son. How do we gain it? Not through works, not through efforts, not through doing religious acts, but it is given. We are recipients. We receive this life, and how do we receive it? By having faith in the Son that God sent to us. John, 4, uh, John 5 verse 24 gives us a little bit more insight. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. There's a bit of urgency in this one. It gives us to explain why we need to have this life. Because in gaining life, we go from being dead, spiritually dead, to being spiritually alive. We pass from judgment. When we have faith in the Son of God and that He has died for us and taken our punishment upon Himself, judgment is removed off us and we gain life. This is a wonderful, wonderful truth that we are now alive purely in the Son. 
Here's another one. Romans uh, 6 verse 23 expounds on it a little bit more. It says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The wages of sin, the punishment of sin, the result of sin is death. And each and every single one of us, before we come to know Christ, is spiritually dead. And we have this judgment that's going to be upon us. And we need somebody to take this punishment away. But the problem is, as we look around the room and as we look around the world, every single person is deserving of the same punishment. And so what we need is somebody who isn't. Somebody who does not have sin, who does not face this death that is before us. And this person is the God-man Jesus who lives this perfect life that we could not live, who is able to become our substitute on the cross. And as he dies on the cross, our sin is placed upon him. The wrath that we deserved is poured out upon him. And so that whoever believes in the Son Whoever believes in him will have his sin removed and be given life. It is purely that the free gift is life in the Son, Jesus. Now, I want to stop here and I want to point out what is and remind us what is some of the foundations of our faith is who God is. That even at the moment that the person becomes a Christian, at that starting point, they have some things to hold on to. What do they see? They see the Son of God. They believe that He is the Son of God. They see that He is their Savior. They see that He loves them. You see, when you become a Christian, you are able to have at that basic starting out point, you have enough to hold on to. You have a part of the character of God that you can cling on to and live this life of faith in. You don't need to know that he's omniscient, that he's omnipotent. You don't need to know all the terminologies and all these different things. But you have at the starting point that he is my savior, he is God, and he loves me. So it's a wonderful truth of the gospel that even as a newborn Christian, that you can have enough to live out this faith. But there's more than that. That what believing in Jesus does more than that. You notice what the text says. It says, the righteous shall live by faith. So how do we gain righteousness in believing in Jesus? Yes, we certainly do. We gain righteousness. when, When our sin is removed on us, God doesn't leave us as morally neutral before him. But what we see is the righteousness of Jesus is placed on us. It's, it's what Martin Luther would call the great exchange. Jesus will take our sin upon him and we take his righteousness upon us. So when the Father looks at us, he does not see us as sinful, but rather what he sees us is righteous. Not a righteousness of our own, not that what we have done, but the very righteousness of Christ on us. So that, that means we can approach him at any point to run into his presence. And so if we want to look at this verse in a, in a different way to help us understand this, we might be able to flip the wording around and add a word in here or two. We could say, through faith, we have received eternal life and are declared righteous. That's the wonder of the gospel. Now it would be remiss of me to be able to just continue without saying to you this morning, some of you might not know Jesus. You are in a place that you are questioning whether this Christian life is true. Maybe you've been dragged here by a spouse or a friend. But I want to say to you that this gift, this free gift is on offer to you this morning. The gospel is not a call to go sort yourself out first. 
You don't have to leave here and go and clean up your act, then come to Christ. The gospel is for sinners. Christ died for sinners. It's a free gift that is given through faith, not through your works. And I hope this morning, if, that's, if that is you, there'd be this pulling in your heart, this a clarity in your eyes to see Christ as your Savior, and He's calling you home. But for those of us who are Christian that have received this life, we are to now live this life out by faith. And I think this is sometimes where we fall short as Christians. We, we realize the necessity of faith in order to gain life, but for some reason we have a skewed perspective that we don't necessarily need faith in order to now live out this life we have gained. We, we, we need to see from this text that the righteous shall live by faith. That in, now that we have this life, in order to live this life out to its full potential, faith is required. Now again, what are some of the fundamentals of our faith? It is founded in who God is and what He has done. But also I want to add in this morning another element. That faith is also finding satisfaction in God. Faith is finding a satisfaction in him that you have tasted and you have seen this wonderful God. I, I want to read from, to you from John 6 verse 35. It says this. Jesus says, I am the bread of life and whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That we who have faith in Jesus have tasted that he is all we need. A part of faith is understanding his character and trusting his character, but the other part of faith is going, this is all I need. I need God. I am satisfied in him. He is the one that makes me never thirst. He is the one that makes me never hunger. He is what I need in this life. It is him himself. I need him, nothing else. And that is important for us and if we are to live out this faith in all areas of life. Why is that? Well, let me give you uh, an example. Is that when the world comes and tempts us in a variety of different ways and you have your own temptations, you may be able to just slot that in there this morning and it comes and it lays it before you. It's beautiful, it's attractive. It gives you all the promises of satisfaction and joy. Do this in your heart. You know how it is, at least I'm just speaking from experience, that you desperately want it, right? You're going, this, this is what I need, and I know if I do it, oh, it will satisfy me. This is what will give me the joy that I'm looking for. Where faith comes in is that it's able to stop. It goes, well, man, I just need to, I just need to think about those two things. Firstly, I need to realize that my own heart is, is wicked above all else. It's deceitful. I cannot trust it. But what can I trust? I can trust this God. Who is he? He's a God who loves me. He's a God who cares for me. He's a God who's faithful to me. He's a God who's good and kind towards me. And so when he commands me not to do that, and my heart says, do it, but he says, don't do it, who do I trust? I trust not my wicked heart, but my God who has my best interests. And so, though every part of me, my feelings are pulling me elsewhere, faith rises up by going, no, I trust in his commandments because they are good for me. Does that make sense? And, and, and as he goes further than that, you add the other element in of going, well, no, no, this is promising me satisfaction. Sorry, Mark's on camera there. I just moved very quickly. I just realized 
man, this is my satisfaction here. This is offering me satisfaction. But no, 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 no. That is but scraps compared to the satisfaction I have in God. And I do not want to jeopardize it. I do not want to mess with it. I want him. He fully satisfies me. And so the world comes with its packaging saying, look at how pretty this is. I'm going, I do not want it. I have faith that that is not good for me. God is all I need. He is the one that satisfies this deep thirst in my heart. And I will give up, even if it seems illogical, I will give it up to follow him because in him I will never thirst again. That is where faith is stirred. Faith is understanding who he is and that he is all I need. And that's how we live by faith. And I hope that it was simple to understand, easy to explain, but incredibly difficult to do. It's incredibly difficult to do. And it's because to live by faith is to die to self to die to self. Jesus puts it like this in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever saves his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You to live by faith is to follow Christ. It is to deny ourselves. It is to pick up our cross, which is excruciating. I know we have this image of a cross as being nice. We have one up here, but that was a symbol of death, to, to, to die to ourselves and to follow Christ. But we see that there is a trust element that is needed there, but to realize that true life is found in following Jesus and giving up my life, and if I try to save my life, I will lose it. And so there is this need for us to, to live by faith, but damn, it is difficult. Sorry, darn, it is difficult. That's on camera. I'll recover from that now. Paul puts it like this in Galatians 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul says, I, I have been saved by Jesus. I, I, my old self is gone. I am now alive in Jesus. I have been crucified with him. I am now alive in the Son of God. And how do I live out this life? I live it by faith in the Son of God. And then what does he do? He goes and recalls who the Son of God is. He, the Son of God, has, he has, he's the one who loves me and gave himself up for me. You see how he even stirs up faith in his own heart. Man, if I'm going to live by faith of the Son of God, I have to recall to my mind that he is the one who loves me and gave himself up for me. He looks at the cross. He remembers what Jesus has done. Do you lack faith this morning? The best place that you can stir up faith in your heart, church, is by looking to the cross. It is at the cross that we see the greatest demonstration of love. There's no greater demonstration of it. It's at the cross that we see the greatest demonstration of faithfulness. We see God's greatest demonstration of grace, of mercy, of patience, of justice. You want, to, you want to stir up faith? Keep your eyes fixed on the cross. 
It is there you will see the characteristics of God, the beautiful characteristics of God displayed for you to see. But what I love about this text, and I noticed it when I was reading it and preparing the sermon, is Paul doesn't use the word us when he says this. He's writing to the Galatians who are Christian. If you read the book, they certainly are. They're struggling with a few things, but they're Christian. They love Jesus. But yet Paul uses first person, not the third person or the second person. He, he, he uses first person. He says, I have been crucified. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And, in, and the life I live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself up for me, uh, who loved me and gave himself up for me. It's personal. You see, Paul has tasted and has seen the wonders of who God is. It's not something that's airy-fairy in the air. It's not just a theology that he knows that God loves him, but it is a personal love. He has tasted. He has enjoyed. And it is by this enjoying regularly of the love of God that gives him the faith to live it out, to live for him. It's not something that is just out there or generalized for all people, but he has made it personal for himself. Do you want faith? This faith has to be a personal thing. The danger is that when it just becomes a theological argument or understanding that never becomes something that captivates your heart. And for Paul, he has been captivated. He loves me. Oh, he gave himself up for me. This is what captivates him as he, 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 he focuses on the cross and he lives out this faith. So when the world and it sure would have come his way, tempted him to do other things and came and made him promises, his eyes were so fixated on what Christ has done, he was enjoying it and tasting it so often that it did not seem worthwhile doing because there was something greater in comparison the satisfactions, the love of God and who he is and enjoying him out, far outweighed what the world could offer. And that gives us life. That's how we live. Faith is, is personally making us something that we get to enjoy. And so we can trust him over our wicked hearts. We, we can uh, go to him and and know that he has our best interests at heart and, and, and we can live a life for him because he is everything we need. Faith is, the foundation of our faith is who he is and being satisfied in who he is. And that's how we live this out. And I, I must say this though, that these truths of who God is, and I wanna be sensitive here because as I look around, around the room, I know some of you are going through some hardship. But these sufferings that we go through, faith is most stirred in those moments. You want to know who God is, is very seldom do we grow in that in a proper understanding through joy and through, uh, through easy moments. It's through hardship that we get to know the character of God more. It's through hardship that we have to put our trust in Him like we've never had to do before. Do you want to know God as your provider? It's through financially difficult moments that you know that. More than any. Because you have to trust him that he will come through for you. It is through when those who have despised you and, and don't love you when they should, do you know God as the one who never leaves you nor forsakes you? 
when you can really call him friend when all your friends have abandoned you. It is through ter- terminal illness when it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when that you will die, that you get to know God as your savior. That you get to experience his great grace in saving you more than anything else. And that you will know him as physician, maybe not on this side of the grave, but you will know it on the next. It is moments through difficulty that we get to grow through our faith. And I say that this morning because I want us not to despise our trials so much that we don't grow in our faith in God. That we don't grow in our understanding of him. Now, I mean, I've been through tough times in my life and I've come out the other side not any better off because I've hated it so much that I never looked to God to cling on to him. But what a waste it would be that you would have to go through that because you're going through it, right? And not come out the other side knowing I know my God better. We need to say the words of Charles Spurgeon. He famously said once, he said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me up against the rock of ages. Can we learn to do that? I want to move on, though. I, I, I want to say that, 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 this, that I think it is possible to have spiritual life, that you are saved, that you are regenerate, that you are born again, but yet not truly live. That it's possible to be a Christian but yet not experience the fullnesses of life. And that is because though God has set us free from sin, we don't live out our life of faith and we run back to what he has set us free from. We run back to sin, we run back to all those things, we dabble in it. And as a result, the Christian life seems boring, it seems mundane, it seems like it has no purpose and there is no life in us. But friends, I want to encourage you, if you know Christ this morning, that we need to stir up faith in our hearts, trust him, and find that life is in him. The biggest, one of the biggest uh, criticisms on the Christ, Christian church is there's no difference to us in the world. But when we live by faith, there's a joy that rises in us. There's a difference through character, sure, but there is a, a life in us that the world desperately wants because they are seeking satisfaction in all different things, but we have the answer. We have what they want. And that is demonstrated through our living a life of faith. And we've got to wake up as a church, not just SBC, as a global church. We've got to wake up and, and live and do this. But because, because what you've got to realize is that faith is not necessarily automatic. Living by faith isn't something that just comes naturally. Sure, there are moments when it does. But often, very often we have to be intentional in living out our faith. We have to make a decision to do so. When the temptation comes before you, there is a wrestling that happens and a casting off of the sin, a fleeing from the temptation and the pursuit of Christ. There is actions involved. Fight the good fight of faith. You fight, and I don't know if you've ever been in fights before. I have. You have to pick up your fist and throw them. Otherwise, it's just a punching bag and you lose. There's an action involved. So, so I, I want to end off with this section on, on living a life of faith with this one. How do we know when we are living a life of faith? How do we know? What are, what are the marks of a life lived by faith? We see it in our text. It says the righteous shall live by faith. Or if we want to put it a different way, those who live by faith are righteous. That if when we live a life of faith, we are marked and characterized by righteousness. And that's because when, when God has gives, and that's because we found that 
good place of, of that tension when God commands us not to do things and to do things and temptation comes to tell us to do the opposite of that. We don't do it because we trust in who he is and therefore we live out his commands and that by, uh, by, as a result, there is a righteousness that is stirred. We live for him. We live like he wants us to and there's a mark of righteousness that flows over us. We, when we're struggling financially, we, we don't necessarily need to cheat in business or do things incorrectly because why? We live by faith. God is the one that provides for me, not, not myself. And so yes, we work hard, we give ourselves to it, but we don't have to end up sinning in order to provide. Why? Because he's my provider. We understand that the commands of God are given to us not because he wants to be some party pooper, because he wants life to be boring, but because he knows that's where life is found. And so we live in his commands and we live for him. R.C. Sproul unfolds it like this in his commentary on Romans. In Romans 1 verse 17, it quotes this verse and it says this, the one who lives by faith is a righteous person in the sight of God. The righteous live by trust. In other words, the thing that characterizes the righteous person above all else is an abiding trust in God and his promises. Because righteous people trust the Lord. They continue to believe him even when he seems slow to act. They, don't believe, they, uh, they do not just believe in God, they believe God. That's good. They don't just believe in God, they believe God. Because they believe the Lord, they are faithful to him and obey him. And he has an important caveat. Truly, though imperfectly, out of their deep loyalty to him. Faith stirs up righteousness in us. So this is, this is how we find faith again. I just want to do it. It is be, by trusting in who God is and being satisfied in him. Now the up, other option of that is this, is that is in a way of unbelief. Now I want to say to you that there are only two ways. There's not a middle way. There's not a neutral way. We either are living by faith or we are living by unbelief. We can live by faith regularly, but when we don't, we are living in unbelief. That behind our sin and behind our disobedience is an attitude of unbelief. And I want to try to prove that to you very quickly this morning. We've, we see this in our text. It says, uh, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not right within him. I'm going to let Hebrews uh, 10 verses 38 help uh, uh, unpack that for us. It says this. It says, but the righteous shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, uh, my soul has no pleasure in him. It's a shrinking back. It's this attitude of unbelief in God. So what I want to show to you this morning is that in our text, we see that God gives the five words to the Babylonians. We didn't read them. It was just, it was very long and not very uh, happy. And so there are five words that he gives. He says, you have done this and therefore this will happen to you. And he does that five times. What I'm going to try to do for us is quickly just to characterize those into a sin. And then I want to show us how at the core root of that sin is the issue of unbelief, not a life of faith. And the first one that, that we see here is an issue of pride. We see it right in the, the text in verse 4. It says, behold, his soul is puffed up. There is a pridefulness there. We also see throughout the, uh, the five words that pride is an issue of unbelief. Pride and faith are contrary to each other. They're, they're opposites. You can't trust in God and be arrogant. It's just, a, you can't do it. So um, Proverbs 28, 25 shows us this. It says, an arrogant man stirs up strife, 
but he who trusts in the Lord will prosper. There's an arrogance, there's a pride, and there's trusting. There are two different things. That's why Stephen uh, Charnock goes and he quotes, he makes this quote. He says, a proud faith is as much as a contradiction as a humble devil. You see, pride is an issue of unbelief because if, if faith is trusting in who God is and being satisfied in him, pride is trusting in self and being satisfied in self. It's, it's, a, it's finding satisfaction in my own intelligence, in my own strength, and in my own ability, in what I have. And, and this is not just things of the world. We can have religious people who are prideful. We're not prideful in our own intelligence and how much we know God and the things that we do for God. We, our way of thinking, our way of doing is prideful. They talk about themselves a lot. They talk about how great they are and they break down others. This is a prideful thing that happens. Pride is an issue of unbelief because it finds satisfaction in me rather than in God. Do you see that? I don't have time to say that pride is a whole sermon or series in itself, so we're going to swiftly move along there. But pride is an issue of unbelief. The second one that we see is an issue of covetousness. The Babylonians went and they just grabbed what they wanted. They saw what other nations had and they said, thanks, we would have that. The issue of covetousness or coveting is an issue of unbelief. And coveting might not necessarily be high up on our lists of sins to watch out for but it's, it's highly warned in Scripture. It, makes, it cracks the Ten Commandments. Do not covet, number 10. It scrapes in there, but it gets in there. And covetousness is defined by John Piper as the following, and I think it shows us immediately how it's an issue of unbelief. It says covetousness, he says covetousness is desiring something so much that you lose your contentment in God. The opposite of covetousness is contentment. Do you see how that's opposing to satisfaction and faith in God? It, if, if it's, it's finding satisfaction in things rather than finding satisfaction in God. If pride is, a, is an issue of I find satisfaction in myself rather than God, coveting is, is I find satisfaction in things rather than in God. It's, it's looking and saying, Lord, I know you've given me all of yourself. You have given me all that I own, but it's just not enough. It's not good enough. It's, it's just not right. I need what that person has. I need to have that. And if I could get this thing or that thing or the other thing, then life will be good. Then I will be satisfied. It's an issue of unbelief that God is not enough and that what he has given you is not right. He doesn't know what he's doing. He should give you these things first. It's an issue of unbelief. I, I hope I'm showing you some things this morning. The next one is the issue of wrath. We, we see it in this text of Babylonians are violent and they go and destroy. And, and often for us, wrath comes in when someone has done something wrong against us. And it's an act of vengeance or revenge. But God clearly tells us in, in Romans 12 verse 19 that we are not to be revengeful, that he is the one who will uh, enact revenge. And we are to trust him. If pride is an issue of finding satisfaction in self and coveting is finding satisfaction in things, then wrath is finding satisfaction in revenge. And this doesn't necessarily come in that we go and violently attack someone like the Babylonians did, but it often manifests itself in our heart through bitterness. Smaller, less evident, but it's in, crept into our heart that we are bitter. 
we are angry, that we, when we consider the other person, we can't say anything nice about the man. We can't wait to have an opportunity to break them down to somebody else. We, we look forward to seeing them fail, and when things go wrong for them, it gives us a bit of joy. Bitterness and unforgiveness in our heart is a matter of unbelief, that we have not been able to let these things go and trust that God is the one that would deal with it. We have to make sure that we enact revenge in other ways. It's a matter of unbelief. Last one, and we'll be done, is the one of lusts. We see it in, in the, one of the woes. It talks about how they've got people naked and, and drunk, and, and there's the issue of lust. So I'm not talking about just uh, sexual lust, but that's included, but all behaviors and passions of this world. It's an issue of unbelief. It's an issue of unbelief because ultimately when the temptation comes our way, we go again, this is where I'm going to find my satisfaction against the commands of God because I'm not finding satisfaction in Him. Does that make sense? Are you getting it? And, and church, and Wav uses certain examples this morning to, to show us that if we dive at the core root of every one of our sin, it ultimately comes down to unbelief in who God is. Unbelief that He satisfies. A distrusting in Him. And so we must make sure that we are people that regularly run to the cross to stir up faith in our hearts, to be a people that stir up faith in Him and who He is, but also to satisfy ourselves of Him. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to try and do that. I'm going to ask the servers, uh, those who are serving, to, to please come forward uh, and do that. But one of the best places to do this is at the communion table. As we come around uh, the communion table uh, this morning, as we partake of these elements, we are reminded over and over again of God's manifested love towards us and who He is. So what I want us to do is we partake of these elements, just hold on to them and just think of who God is as you do so. But not only that, uh, there might be some... Uh, uh, repentance that needs to happen in your heart. God has revealed some unbelief in your heart. Spend time just saying, Lord, please forgive me. And then, and then in that, make this personal. The reason why we do this physically, it's not just something that is spoken about. It's because it reminds us that this is something that's happened for us. It's as if God himself is breaking the bread and giving it to you. It's, it's something personal. This is a death, and his blood was shed for you. This death is applies to you. Can you say like Paul this morning, he has given himself up for me. He loves me. This, these elements warm our hearts to that. Let us pray, and then I'm gonna call us all forward. Lord, we thank you so much for the work that you have done. We thank you that you have called us to life, you have given us life, but you called us to live out this life for you. And so Lord, as we partake of these elements and we do so, would you, would you stir up faith in our hearts? Would you remind us of the things that you have done? Would who God is and, and who he is before us be something that, is, that we can cling on to and hold on to in the midst of trial and in the midst of every other uh, um, uh, path that you have called us on? And we pray, Lord, that as we partake of this, that you would rejuvenate us to taste of you, to enjoy you, to delight in you for the glory of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you wouldn't mind coming forward, getting the elements, and then just hold them and we will eat and drink together.
the things us will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. satisfy ourselves in things that are not you. Oh, but Lord, would you stir up in us a desire of faith for more of you, that we would live for your glory, we pray. Empower us, Holy Spirit, to do this in Jesus' name. Let's eat and drink together. Stand as we sing the next song. Behold you. 
the Omega, our Savior, our friend, our brother, our teacher, we just glorify and lift up your name. And I will fall 
this time. It's been good to be in your presence and to hear your voice this morning. I pray that you would wrap what we've heard in grace this week, that your spirit would work powerfully in us to remind us of this powerful word of Habakkuk, uh, to call us to faith, not to self, and that as a church would grow in this week ahead. Y'all, we thank you for this time. Part us with your blessing, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Four things for you as you're about to leave. The first